Well, one of the famous stories from church history is after a few years of ministry in Geneva, um, the people of Geneva ran John Calvin and William Farrell out of town. He actually stopped the dancing and drinking and gambling and some other things, and uh, so the town wasn't too happy for that, and then it got worse after he left and after a period of time and convincing to bring Calvin back, after being gone, I think it was about two years, uh, he stepped back in the pulpit and picked up at the very next verse that he left off from whenever he was, was run out of, of town. And I am not John Calvin, uh, you're not Geneva, but we are picking back up at the very next verse that we left off in, in Romans 7. So I want you to open your Bibles to Romans 7. What a blessing it is to say those familiar words. And uh, we turn, return to this great letter today, and as you heard from our reading this morning, what's immediately staring us in the face uh, it, you know, is two things. First, the, this very difficult final, uh, final section in, in chapter 7. And the second is the glorious summit that awaits on the other side that, that you are anticipating, and so am I, which is Romans chapter, chapter 8. This challenging segment of Romans 7, verses 14 through, through 25, gives way to one of the most glorious parts of the letter in chapter 8. And we worked up through Romans 7, 12 before we left off. And if you studied ahead, if whether for uh, this morning or in your own personal study, you know that the rest of the chapter of Romans 7 is like staring up at, at Hillary's step, which is the 40-foot vertical you know, sheer rock face at Everett's summit, named after the famed uh, New, New Zealander uh, Edmund Hillary, who was the very first, I think it was in 1953, to reach the summit in, in Everest. And so after climbing all the way to the top, there's a 40 foot straight up before you get to, to, to the summit. Uh, that sadly was actually destroyed in the earthquakes uh, in Nepal in 2015. But before it was destroyed, it was a class four rock climb. I'm not a rock climber, but that sounds like a pretty hard thing to do. Class four, I don't know what's above class four. What I do know is that as you're on this, this, this path, a very narrow path that only one person can get up, it's a 10,000-foot drop to your right and an 8,000-foot drop to your left. So one misstep, and it's your last. And, and, and honestly, that's how expositing Romans 4, 14 through 20 feel, uh, 25 feels like. At least it was for me. Except the air is not is not thin with very few people around, like on Everest. Romans seven thirteen through twenty five is one of the most, if not the most, written about section in all of Romans. There are more commentators with us as we approach this section than can fit on the trail, and they've expelled enough hot air that would take five hundred Sherpas to carry their oxygen tanks. I mean, ink thousands of gallons spilled on on this these final verses. And I won't bore you with all their opinions today, but let me just say, after wrestling through this section, it truly is one of the most perplexing passages in Romans. 
because depending upon how you take certain things that the Apostle Paul says, and we're 2,000 years away and we're, we're trying to, to, to get into Paul's mind here, we know the exegesis, we know how to look at the Greek, we know how to, to look at the passage and break it down, but each word then has a meaning, textual meaning. And depending upon which you, you take can lead you down this path or down that path, and we have to stay on a very narrow path. We, we need to reach the summit. For example, is Paul referencing himself in this section where he talks about I, I? And if so, you say, well, that's very obvious. I mean, when somebody says, I, he's talking about themselves, then how, if that's true, then how can he say, as the great apostle, I am sold under sin? I mean, he just got done telling us in chapter 6 that the bondage of sin is broken. If Paul's talking about himself, then, then how, can he, how can he say that in verse 14? Or is Paul using a very common figure of speech, uh, like he's speaking in character, like as Adam or Israel to answer these, these, these critical questions, as if he's talking about somebody else, but the, using the first person in, in doing that. And if that's the case, if Paul's describing someone else's experience here, then why does he say in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me or who would deliver me from this body of death? I mean, that doesn't sound like someone who's talking about someone else. That sounds like a man who feels that himself. And then once you settle those issues, and you have to answer, I mean, is Paul speaking here about his pre-Christian experience? I mean, is that why Paul, Paul it's Paul talking? And he says, I am sold under sin. Is he, is he talking in the present tense about, about what it was like whenever he was an unbeliever before he came to Christ? Or, or is this a believer? struggling after salvation, or is it neither? I mean, all of those options are exegetically possible. If it's an unbeliever before salvation, then why does he use the present tense? Why does he talk like he's talking right now? And if it's a believer battling the flesh, then why does he talk like this person is still in bondage? And why is the Holy Spirit never mentioned? I mean, if this is the the experience of a believer, then why does Paul talk like he's still in, he's still bound and, and there's no mention of the Spirit? Like in Galatians 5, I mean, we know there's a battle between the flesh and the Spirit, but this is a battle between the flesh and the law, which is the key. Galatians 5, it's the flesh and the Spirit. The Spirit's not mentioned here at all. It's not mentioned until you get into, into chapter 8. And, and frankly, there are strong arguments for all of those, those things. And what you, which one you choose, what you choose in each scenario leads you down a path to another set of questions, to another set of questions. And, and even though all of that's true, and God inspires hard texts, uh, this is not undiscernible. I mean, when you come to a passage like this that's hard, you just remember that God gave the Bible to understand. And this passage is no different. He does inspire hard text. You do have to work. But God gave us the Bible to be plain, to be clear for Christians to be able to put it in, into, into practice. And so again, a thousand years away, there are little things that you have to make decisions on. But the key, I think, to see your way through is to keep the context tight. Think of it like this single path climbing up Everest. 
don't meander. Don't get too far out of the, the, you know, the ice path here. Remember, Paul is arguing about one thing, and that is what's up on our screen, the law. Here, how the law interacts with the, with the flesh. And if you keep that focus on this narrow ice path in front of you, as, as you climb, you won't change the nuances. Because if you do, you'll lose your balance, and you'll plunge over the side into the theological abyss. I mean, in verse 13 of chapter 7, Paul shifts to a new question. One of four that began in chapter 6, which indicates he's leading us into a new section on this chapter about the law. Look, look if you would, at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Now he concludes, verses 7 through 12... It, with verse 12. So then, here's my conclusion, Paul says, of the first question, is the law sin? No way. My conclusion. So then, I prove to you, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. New question. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? I mean, verse 13 acts as a bridge, if you will, between verses 7 through 12, where Paul answers the question, which shows how the law helps us understand the depth of our sin by revealing it. Paul says, I wouldn't even know what sin was. I know sin's there, but I wouldn't know the depth of sin. I know I, I, I've got corruption in me, but when the law came and said, thou shalt not covet, and I saw exactly what coveting meant through the law, and then that actually stirred up more coveting in me, now I see exactly what God means by, by, by sin and, and the law. He reveals it. Verse 13 is a bridge between that section and this new one. It begins in verse 14. It goes to the end of the chapter, which talks about how the law has no ability to help us obey God. The law reveals sin, and the law has, offers us no ability to obey God. And he describes why. So the topic is still all about the law, not a person's salvation status. Paul says the law is not bad. In fact, it's spiritual. But even though that law is holy and good, and now he'll say it's spiritual, it cannot help a person overcome the problem of sin. Mankind has the flesh to deal with, which is unmoved by God's commands. Here's the flesh. You apply God's law to it, which is holy, good, and spiritual, and it comes up against the flesh, and the flesh is, is not moved at all by it. No, no, it gives you no assistance whatsoever to deal with the flesh that's in you. And this final, ex, final section explains why that is. And then it points us to where God's answer truly lies in chapter 8, which we're looking forward to. And here, Paul will show us that God has provided the answer in Christ and in, and in His Spirit. It removes our guilt. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and enables us to do the very thing. The law of the spirit of life gives us the ability to do what the law could, could not do. Our hope is in the spirit-filled life, not the law-directed one. That would be a good way to summarize that. And true to form, Paul is following a very methodical logic, laying out his case point by point by point. I mean, he says, if sin, seizing an opportunity through God's commandment, deceived me and killed me, like he just described in verses 7 through 12, then that raises another question that Paul feels like he must deal with. 
And that question is God's good law to blame for his death or our spiritual death? I mean, can the law be responsible in any way? I mean, if he says that the law was added, it wasn't God's original plan, but it was added actually to, to, to expose sin and then to make sin worse, doesn't that indicate in some way that the law is responsible or could be blamed in some way? Is there something in it, in the law, that, that produces this result of death? And, and Paul answers again, may God forbid. Don't ever say that. Don't blame God for your sin and don't blame the law for your sin. And then he explains why you shouldn't say that through the rest of the chapter, why that's not the case, why it can't be. It can't be, Paul says. Look, look at the rest of verse 13. Here's the question. Therefore, did, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? It's a cause of death. May it never be. Don't ever say that. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. The law is good, and God did it so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So we would see just exactly how bad it is. Paul, again, says sin is the culprit, and he affirms the law is good. And that law, that, and that, that God did, did it this way, through his good law, so that we could see how bad sin really is and how deep our problem really goes. And he'll continue to show us that by describing his and your experience related to obeying the law. You interact with God's law. You interacted with God's law as an unbeliever. You still interact with God's law as a, as a believer. So how's that going for you? What, do you what, what does the law add as far as strength, as far as power, to be able to do right. That's what Paul's going to talk about in this section. It's your experience and his experience. that Even when we see what God commands is right and good, we don't always obey it. I mean, you ask anybody on the street, even an unbeliever, you'll get somebody to tell you that, to affirm that, that the commandments are good. I mean, is it, is it right to lie? Well, of course not. No, absolutely not. I mean, lying is, is, is not a good thing. Well, do you lie? Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, everybody does. I mean, nobody's perfect. But, but you can get them to acknowledge that, that, that God's law is good and, and, and right, but then when you turn the coin and, and ask them, can you not do that or have you done that, then, then, then now they, they say, well, explain it away. I mean, the fact that there's a commandment doesn't help them keep from lying. In fact, there are many times where we know right, but we do wrong. Isn't that true? You know the right thing to do, but you end up doing the wrong thing. And we have a desire to do what pleases God, or we have a desire not to do wrong. We have a desire to do what pleases God as a Christian, or, or even as an unbeliever, we, we have a desire not to do wrong for whatever the motive. I don't want the consequences, or it's just not my, my conscience won't let me do that. But there's a war in a Christian. And that war we often succumb to. There's a war in the conscience of an unbeliever. And Paul will show us that, that having the law itself gives you no aid in that battle. No power in the law. Sin is so pervasive and we're so eaten up with it that the law which is good lends us no help whatsoever in obeying God. It's a line. It reveals. It 
tells us what's right, but it doesn't give us any power to do what, what, what's right. It takes the Spirit to obey, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus. Look, if you would, at chapter 8, verse 2. Let me give you kind of a little peek into where Paul will take us. Chapter 8, verse 2. You know the first verse. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And being in Him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Him. And then he takes up the explanation for this dilemma of the flesh. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It sets you free from the condemnation. For what the law could not do, the law couldn't do it, weak as it was through the flesh. That's why it couldn't do it, weak through the flesh. God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh as an offering for sin. That's why you can be forgiven. He condemns sin in the flesh. And what's the result? So that the, that, so that the re requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us, both being declared righteous by Christ alone, by His keeping of the law alone, and now the Spirit, which empowers us to do what we were unable to do in the flesh before. That's God's answer to the problem of the flesh. But before He gives it to us, he does what every good teacher does, frankly. He walks us through the throes of a person recognizing that. He doesn't just state it. He, he, he takes us through this, this, this back and forth of watching a person come, against, come up against the law with the flesh and what ends up happening. And it's a passage that we all relate to because we've experienced this ourselves. I mean, who hasn't been a self-righteous man or a woman thinking that they're a good person only to realize the demands of the law are much deeper than we ever thought and then realize that you can't keep it no matter how hard you try. And, and even after coming to Christ as a Christian, who hasn't been a foolish Galatian at one point? Having begun in the Spirit, you've tried to perfect yourself in the flesh. What unsaved person and what Christian hasn't felt this unsolvable dilemma in, in Romans 7.15? Look at verse 15. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. I mean, Christians hate the sin that they once loved. And yet they find themselves doing it at times. Don't you? I mean, if you don't hate the sin, then there's a problem. But Christians, even hating that sin, can find themselves doing it at times. And again, there's a difference between slipping in a mud puddle and jumping in one. Or staying in the mud puddle and swimming around. You can get mud on you as a believer. And unsaved people. They can find sin that they once enjoyed so overpowering, so enslaving when its consequences take hold, that they wish they could stop. But they can't. Even though they know it's wrong. Even though they know it's bad. And in that moment... The feeling of total incapability in their strength is described in verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Feel that tension. Paul says that that powerlessness comes from the flesh. It doesn't come from the law. 
And who in here as a believer has not come to the place where after becoming so weary with this battle that you cry out with great passion like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? When is this battle going to be over? It is this inability to stop sinning that every unsaved person feels, which is what one of the things that God uses, the Spirit uses to show them their need of Christ. And it is a tension that every Christian feels in the already but not yet aspect of their salvation. I mean, you already have certain things, the new covenant, the Spirit in you, but you're not fully glorified yet. There's already, but there's not yet. I mean, and Paul says, says both come to the same, come from the same source. This inability in an unbeliever and this battle in a believer both come from the same source. It's from within you. It's in your members. Which then sets the stage for the great solution in Romans 8 where you're reminded of God's ultimate answer. Look at Romans 8 verse 10. Watch how he, he goes to the very end. So chapter 5 says that we have, we have peace with God and then he says we have hope. We have a future hope. And chapter 8, he starts talking about the, the Spirit has been given now to, to, to deal with that battle, but, but, but what do we ultimately have to look forward to? Just to battle the rest of our lives? No, here's what we have to look forward to. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's the resurrection. He's given you the Spirit now to to, to manage it, deal with it, to grow, but that's not the ultimate hope. The Spirit is just a foretaste. It's a down payment. It's a deposit for what truly awaits, which is glorification. We won't deal with the battle or the flesh at all. I mean, and doctrine always leads to practice. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, after all this teaching, so then, brethren, we are, under, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Or if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Not only now, but in the future. Christians, we're, we're already set free from the slavery of sin in chapter 6, but, but we're, not, we're not yet free from its presence. We're already free from the final consequence of, of sin's result being spiritual death, the second death. But we're not, re- not yet free from all of sin's consequences, like the battle, like the fact that you're still going to die unless the rapture comes. We're free from the law's reign over us, which could only condemn us, but but we're not free from sin completely, which is still resident within us. We're no longer condemned, praise God. We've been given the Spirit of Christ, but we're not yet glorified, which is coming when we're set free from this body of death. And that conflict is what Paul will explain to us in the verses that, 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 that follow. Very tight context, dealing with what happens when you apply the law to the flesh. And his conclusion will show us that the law gives you no help or assistance whatsoever to overcome or overpower the flesh. Even though the law is spiritual, even though it's good, 
it can't be blamed. The problem is within you. So that's where we're going. But let me re- let me remind you how we how we got here. Thank you. Romans, you remember, is broken down in eight parts, and we're in chapter seven. And Paul starts, if you remember, all the way back when we began. I have no idea how long ago. The introduction to the gospel of God as revelation of His righteousness in verses 1-7, through Paul introduces himself to this church that doesn't know him. And he says, I was set apart as an apostle for the gospel. And and then he provides a description of his message. Verses 8-15, through he thanks the church and then he states his theme. The verse that you know so well that's on t-shirts and bumper stickers. Romans 16 Sorry, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, quoting the Old Testament, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The verse that Luther was converted through. That's chapter 1, that's his introduction. And then... Paul goes to show the universal need for the gospel. In chapter 1 through chapter 3, sinners, universal need is diagnosed. Why is he preaching this message? Because it's necessary. The good news about salvation starts with the bad news about our condition. Irreligious people need to be saved because they're all truth suppressors. That's chapter 1, the pagan. Religious people need to be saved because they're hopelessly self-righteous. In chapter 2. And then all people need to be saved because they're universally guilty and totally depraved. In chapter 3, verse 9, that's the, we're all sold under sin, none righteous, no, not one, none who understand. One writer said, Paul shows in this section that it's not just the God-suppressing pagans running around worshiping little idols, but they are self-righteous moralists that use religion. They're guilty too. The truth-suppressing sinners and the religious sinners... That second group is the ones that are asking these questions about the law in chapter 7. Then number three, Paul shows the exclusive solution in the gospel. It's justification by by faith alone. That begins in chapter 3, verse 21, verse 25. I mean, if there was a section in Romans that I would just want to preach over and over and over, it would be that section. 321, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. What a glorious truth. But this is the exclusive solution. Which is Paul's message? Exclusive solution to all sinners. And then Paul shows a believer's assurance. He starts talking about assurance. He now turns to those who have been justified in chapter 5, and that stretches all the way through chapter 8. Chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. All four of these chapters, and this is the section that that we're in. He describes a change in how we relate to God in chapter 5. We now have peace with God. We were once an enemy to God. We're now at peace with God. There's a change in how we relate to Adam and Christ. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ in the end of chapter 5. There's a change in how we relate to the bondage of sin in chapter 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. And there's a change in how we relate to the law. Romans 7, which is the section we're in now. And there's going to be a change in how we relate to the Spirit of God. 
Spirit of God now dwells in us. All of that's about assurance, chapter 8. And then we're not there yet, but we will be. What do you have to look forward to? The defense of the gospel related to Israel, chapter 9 through 11. God's sovereign election defends it in chapter 9. Christ's central focus defends it. Israel's um, irresponsibility defends it. God's future promise to Israel defends it in chapter 11. And then he moves from, from doctrine, if you will, to, to practice. Chapter 12, you know how chapter 12 begins. Probably memorized it the same way I did. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body to living sacrifice. Therefore, because of all of these mercies that I've described, now he starts applying it. The gospel transforms human relationships in chapter 12. It transforms our relationship to authority and government in chapter 13. It transforms our relationship to weaker brothers in Romans 14 and Romans 15. And then Paul gives an example of preaching the gospel, chapter 15. And then he ends with doxology, praise to God for the gospel. So there's the eight parts of, of, of Romans. And we now stand on the back porch of the second section of Romans 7, which begins in verse 14. The question's asked in verse 13. Paul rejects the question, and then he goes on to explain. Look at verse 14. Notice it starts with the word for, Romans 7, 14. For we know. What do we know, Paul? We know that the law is spiritual. What else do we know, Paul? But I am a flesh sold in bondage to sin. So after showing us our need of the gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the solution of the gospel in 3 and 4, chapter 5 begins a new section which is all about the blessings of the gospel. Starting in chapter 5, stretching through chapter 8, Paul outlines the promises and the privileges that we have because we've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Let me show you how this whole section on assurance begins. And that will lead us up to chapter 7. We know chapter 12 starts with therefore. Notice chapter 5 starts with therefore. He's drawing a conclusion. After this is the gospel I'm preaching, this is why everybody needs it, here's the gospel itself. You've been, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have certain things. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained in our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Peace, grace, and hope. He tells us in chapter 6, we were, we were dead to sin and yet alive to God. Sin is no longer our master. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. 6-6. Six, six. be a problem if I put another 6 there, wouldn't it? Knowing this, knowing, you know this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from, from, from sin. But then how can Paul say in chapter 7, I'm, I'm, I'm sold under sin? He declares we're free from the law and its penalty in chapter 7. And one day Christ will even free us from this body of death in chapter 8. He'll describe the new life that we now possess in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 begins this new section, sets the theme. These promises and privileges that we have 
as we talked about, chapter 5 begins it, and chapter 8 picks it back up, and you have chapter 6 and 7 sitting right between here where Paul is actually dealing with objections and explanations. We even talked about how you could start at chapter 5, skip chapter 6 and 7, and pick his theme back up in chapter 8. The reason for chapter 6 and 7 is because Paul knows he needs to answer some questions and debunk some errors. He's preached this gospel before, and there are several points where people got wrapped up around the axle in what he's saying. In fact, he's already told us that in, in Romans 3.8. Listen to this. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some claim we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just, Paul says. People are saying things about Paul. He's preached this before and he's had people react to it. His, me his message has been misrepresented and he's been maligned and the two things that people were saying against his message of the gospel had to do with the extent of grace and it had to do with the application of the law. What do you do with the law? And that's exactly what he covers in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Romans 6 is all about grace and its overpowering of sin and Romans 7 is how grace triumphs in place of the law. You probably recall from chapter 6, the first argument that he deals with, where people saying, then if it's all grace, Paul, then people will just continue in sin. I mean, if God's forgiven us and it's all by grace and past, present, and future sin, then won't people just go do what they want to do? Isn't that like, you know, a credit card without limits on it? We want to limit it in some way. Paul says it's unlimited. Well, then won't that lead people to just go wild? And so Paul spends all of chapter 6 exposing the error of that argument, which is what, they, what we work through. He says it's impossible and impractical. It's impossible because grace changes your master. I mean, people say, I mean, Paul says, my message doesn't produce lawless people, it produces obedient people. Because in grace, you're, you're no longer a slave of sin. You become a slave of Christ. You're a slave and you have a new master. I mean, if you have truly tasted grace, you have no desire to sin anymore. You might. Because you still have unredeemed flesh. But you don't want to. And you hate it whenever you do. And if you don't, then you probably don't have a new master named Jesus Christ. And then he applies that spiritually. He shows actually everyone is a slave, either of sin or of righteousness. And Christians by grace follow a new master by yielding to him. We yield to the Lord. So it's impossible for somebody who's truly tasted grace to just go on sinning. It's also impractical to continue in sin. And he gave us three reasons at the end of chapter 6. It's impractical because, because there's no benefit in the old life. I mean, if you've truly tasted grace and your eyes have been opened to God and sin and everything else, you want to go back to that old life? I mean, as a Christian, you really want to go back to, to that? I don't. As the song says, there's nothing to go back to. Praise the Lord, sweet heavens in view. I'm not returning to sin. I've made my vow. I mean, why would I want to go back there? And there's also no fruit in that life. There's true fruit in the new one. You actually, actually actually get victory. Incremental victories, progressive victories in your sin. You don't just get zapped and everything is hunky-dory, but, but in a, as a Christian under grace with the Spirit, you actually do find that you're overcoming sin. Why would you want to go back to a life where you, you were unable to overcome anything? And in the end, you get eternal life instead of endless death. 
Who would want that? It's impractical. And now in chapter 7, Paul turns to the misunderstandings about the law. Misunderstandings about grace and now about the law. And the argument that some were making about the law was that Paul's message of justification by faith alone requires the law to be disregarded, viewed as something bad. Ten commandments are bad. That's not Paul's saying at all. Remember that came from Romans 5, verses 20 and, and, and 21? Look, look at Romans 5, 20 and 21. This is the point where you leave off chapter 5 and you could pick up in chapter 8. Look, look at how he ends with these blessings that having now been justified. He talks about this reign of grace and how there's a new master and having a new master, you don't want to do wrong, you want to please your, your new master. And then he brings up the law. Verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, increased, grace abounded all the more. And Paul brings up a statement that that causes people to scratch their heads, and, and he now needs to answer more questions and does it on purpose. I mean, Paul clearly says here the law was added. It wasn't even the main thing in God's plan of salvation. And when it did come, it didn't help people get better. It actually increased sin. I mean... Paul's message about the law was it came in alongside God's main plan. God's main plan was salvation by faith alone, which is what you see in Romans 3 and then in Romans 4. Even Abraham and David were saved by faith alone and God's promise of grace alone long before the law ever came. Abraham was before Moses. I mean, the law of Moses was not God's original way of salvation. The law was not God's original way of salvation. The gospel promise was to Abraham. Abraham believed God, believed that God would provide righteousness. And so the law of Moses came in alongside that promise, and Paul says here it was to increase the sinfulness of mankind. And that's a head-scratcher, especially to people who were raised under the law, to love the law. When they heard that, it made them recoil. What do you mean? I mean, if I can even overcome that the law doesn't, aid my salvation, you're telling me that God in His in, in His plan added the law so that sin would increase? It sounded like Paul was belittling the law. And in one sense, he was. He was turning their misunderstanding away, but it also sounded like Paul was saying that the law was to be blamed and the law was bad or that God could be blamed where the problem resided with the law, which he wasn't. And so he writes Romans 7 to address those misunderstandings against the gospel and his message. Paul's already talked about the law in Romans 2. He's already said that the, 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 the law doesn't save you, Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law, that don't have the Mosaic law, will also perish without the law. They're sinners too and condemned. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. And in that judgment, they'll be condemned. I mean, Paul's point then was Jewish people are no better than pagans. The pagans of chapter 1, having the law doesn't save you. Circumcision doesn't save you. Having the covenants doesn't save you. And now in Romans 7, he explains why the law doesn't give the answer. Romans 2, you're a sinner with or without the law. Romans 7 shows why the law can't fix the problem and why it takes specific grace and why God added it alongside the grace. Romans 7, Paul explains that the, the law can't change the leopard's spots, and beyond that, he explains that was God's intended purpose. 
apply the law. So you'd get no results. In fact, you'll get more spots. Which was his statement in 521 at the end of the chapter that seemed so odd. It brings up a legitimate question. I mean, when Paul says the law was added so that sin might increase, the question that many have is, how could adding a holy law increase sin? Unless you're going to say that the law is not holy. Well, that's the question that Paul and that Paul's readers had too, and Paul knows that he needs to explain that. And chapter 7 is not only proof that the law can't solve the condition of sin, but it's also a thorough explanation of how adding the law what it does to our condition. So Paul says, those of you who want to reject grace and keep law, it can't solve your problem because you're the problem. The problem's in you. And not only that, because you're a sinner, the law actually makes you a worse one. Or as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again because that which comes from the flesh is flesh still. Only thing that the flesh can produce is flesh, but that which is of the spirit, the spirit. You think it's the solution to your problem, and, and then it makes you righteous. God says it's the opposite. You know, Romans teaches us three things. Romans 7 shows us why the law couldn't bear fruit toward God. It also gives us a detailed description of how sin responds in us to the law and the things around us, and finally it describes the function of the law the place of the law that it has in, in the life of even a believer. I mean, why was the law set aside? Why was the law not permanent? Because it alone could not bear fruit to God. How does sin work in us and respond to the things around us, including how does the flesh respond to God's holy law? It doesn't help you obey at all. But the law's good. It's right. It's spiritual. But coming up against that line that's clear and black doesn't give you any power whatsoever. I mean, how do we respond to the law as believers? How do we relate to the law under the New Testament? We're under the law of the Spirit, which is life, not the oldness of the letter. Now the Spirit actually gives you abilities that you didn't have before and desires that you didn't always have before, and He transforms you to where the law is now delighted in. And this final section, which we're starting, reminds us why the law doesn't help a believer obey. Not only does Romans 7 have three lessons, but, but it also has three sections. We've been through part one, where Paul defines our new relationship to the law. That's the marriage section. We've been through, we just got through part two, where Paul defends the virtue of the law. He answers the first question and concludes in verse 12. The law is not sin. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and, and, and good. And now we begin part 3, verse 13 through 25, which describes an illustration of that worked out in real life. Paul is an excellent teacher. Paul doesn't just state stuff. Paul actually explains it experientially. He defines a believer's relationship to the law, freed from the law, only grace can transform you to bear fruit. Grace frees you from your old master. The law can't do that. It doesn't do that. In fact, it cannot do that. Then he defends it, which is where we left off before the break. 
And he says the problem is not in the law, but, but in us. And he brings us to this definitive conclusion in verse 12. The virtue of the law is upheld as holy and good. It's not maligned by Paul. It's vindicated by him. The great apostle is not preaching against the law. He's showing its purpose, and yet its limitation. That's why there was not fruit in your unsaved life. Our flesh is the problem, and our flesh keeps us from bearing fruit. I mean, the key word in chapter 6 is sin. 17 times the key word in chapter 7 is law. 18 times it's used, and Paul is showing how they interact with one another. It's like fire and gasoline. The fire is already burning. The fire is already there from your depravity. But the commandment flames it up. He's also saying the law couldn't fix the problem. It makes us worse. The issue's not the law. It's man. It's because of the flesh. The holy and good law of God acts like an accelerant. But the law itself's not bad. And then Paul does what every good teacher do. He does. He, he, he illustrates it. What every good teacher do. Yeah, sounds like I need a teacher. He illustrates it. He uses his own life to do it. He draws you in. You're sitting there going, yeah, I felt that. Yeah, I felt that. Yeah, I've been right there. He describes an illustration of his truths worked out in real life. He doesn't leave it in theory. His own experience and your experience demonstrates everything that he just got done saying in, in this chapter. He's showing how the flesh is not helped by the law. Is it good to know what God commands? Yes, it is. But in your own life, knowing what God commands, is there any power in that? Well, you say it illuminate my mind my brain know what's right, but did that help you obey it? Is there power in that? I kept it some. The standard's not keeping it some. The standard's keeping it all the time and desiring to do that. Paul's showing how the flesh is not helped by the law. And this personal focus is one of the significant differences of chapter 7. I mean, Paul uses personal pronouns throughout this chapter, not just in the end. He uses the personal pronoun I 30 times. He uses me 12 times, my four times, myself once. 47 personal pronouns in 19 verses. And it's there you get to see the focus of the chapter, which is brought into intensive clarity here, here at the end. And this chapter is focused on how mankind interacts with, with the law. And yet it ends in this glorious way. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. Paul cries out. As his flesh interacts with the law, and he finds corruption within and no power in the commandments. Who shall deliver me from this body of death, this problem in my members? Who shall deliver me from myself? And where is the rescue from the personal pronouns interacting with the law? The answer is by turning away from myself and turning toward Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what happens when you look there? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now not condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from then on, the focus turns from me, myself, and I to Jesus Christ and His Spirit. You see, the law can't make us holy, even as a Christian, because we still have the flesh. And one day, praise God, one day, the flesh will be done away with. But until then, God's provision to make us holy is not empowered by the law, but by the present power of the Holy Spirit. You see, you need something more than, than dead commandments to change you, even, those, those, even though those commandments are good and holy and righteous. 
You need the living spirit. You need him because you still have the flesh, because you still live in the world, even though your heart has changed. You're already saved and secured, but you've not received all of the full benefits yet. You haven't received glorification. And so Paul's warning is here. Don't try to use the law to be right with God to begin with. It only has the power to condemn you. And don't try to use the law after you've come to Christ because it has no power to make you holy. Only the Spirit does both of those things. Only the Spirit can convert you and only the Spirit can sanctify you. Or to say it another way, bring us back to biblical anthropology, we're so depraved and so corrupted by the fall, it takes nothing less than the third person of the Trinity to raise us out of that condition and to change us by conforming us to His Son. And that's the point Paul's making. The law's not bad, we're bad. And you can't use the oldness of the letter in your Christian life to become a better Christian. It has no power either. The Spirit uses the law, but the power is the Spirit. You've got something better than the law of Moses. You've got the newness of the Spirit living within you. God has removed the condemnation that comes by the law through the cross of Christ. He's given you real power through the Spirit, which now helps you live. And as you hear that, even as the introduction, it just sets the table for... For, for walking through these, these throws as you're sitting there hearing that, you, you're probably relating. You're paying attention. Yeah, I feel that. I find myself like, I know that there's, that there's right and I know that there's wrong, but I don't want to keep doing the wrong that I'm doing, but I can't stop. Or even as a Christian, I hate my sin. I don't want to do it. And I'll get measure of victory, but then I find the minute I let my guard down, it sneaks in under the door. I hate it. So where's the power? The power's in the Spirit. And the Spirit's been given to you in full measure. You don't need a second blessing. You don't need to cackle like a chicken. You've got the full Spirit of God right now. You realize that? I don't mean that to offend anyone, but that's what it sounds like. You have the third person of the Trinity living in you, empowering you. And you can't overcome sin? Yes, you can. Can you do it perfectly? Not on this side of heaven. But you know what? The same Lord that forgave you, that gave you that spirit, has committed himself to you. He's claimed you. You're his. The evidence of that is He's given you His Spirit. His Spirit to help you overcome sin. So even when you do fall, even when you do sin because of your flesh, that commitment is not altered in any way. Do you think that He knew the sin you were going to commit after you became a Christian? He did. And then didn't change His commitment whatsoever. In fact, He promised that I'll begin a good work in you and I will complete that work and he'll complete that work through the Spirit. Do you have that kind of power? Uh, not as much as I'd like, but it's there. Praise God. You're a believer. Have you ever tried to live the morals and ethics of the Christian life and find no change, no power? That power is available through coming to Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ by faith alone who offers it to you by grace alone and you'll gain that power and a changed life. It won't come all, all at once. Salvation will come all at once. But the growth won't come all at once. But it'll, it'll be there. You just look at it, it'll, you know, there'll be times where it'll just 
and then it'll just. If you look back at your whole life, you look over your whole life, you'll see growth. And you'll groan in your heart, I want more growth. <laughs> because you're a true believer. What you want is glorification, but glorification is not here yet. You look at your life and you see no power, you see no growth, you see no progressive change that you're in, in you at all. You need to see whether you're alive. Because whatever is living grows. And the Spirit is the one that causes that, that growth. It begins by surrendering, surrendering to Him. I encourage you to do that today. And always remember when you come to a passage like this, as, as technical as, as it seems, always remember why Paul's writing, why God put it here. Paul's answering questions of real people who were questioning the gospel and how it interacted with the law. And as he explained it, I don't think that he got so technical that no one could understand what he's talking about. I mean, if, if you forget all, about all of the scholarly nuance that, that's in a passage like this, just read the letter as Paul writing to Christians struggling to, with how the law fits in now. And I think it will help you see it plainly. Remember, God gave his word to help you, to help you understand it. Yes, sometimes you have to labor and do some work. Yes, there are certain things beyond finding out. I mean, how can you plumb the depths of God's wisdom? Yes, there are hard texts. The text is here to help you. And this one's here to show you that there is no power in the law, that you still have the flesh even as a believer, and yet, praise God, you have the spirit as well. And that spirit is just the down payment which is where he'll end in Romans 8. There will be nothing, there can be nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ once the Lord has laid hold of you. Not even death. Not even the devil. That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the progressive growth that comes from the power of your Spirit. I thank you for your law. Without your law, Lord, I wouldn't even know what's right or wrong or the, or the depth of my sin. Thank you that it showed me how helpless and incapable I was that actually led me to Christ. And thank you after I came that you granted me and every believer in here the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't look to the wrong thing for strength, but the right thing, what you've freely given us. And I pray for anyone here who's in the throes of the battle, that you deliver them, give them growth, and anyone who doesn't have any power at all, that they would come to Christ. He'll freely receive them. In Jesus' name, amen.